Hi everyone, Raphael Harry here, and you're listening to White Label American, a podcast where we hear stories from an immigrant or two, sometimes more. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome on the show. Um, thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, welcome to another episode of White Label American. Thank you to all our new listeners. I uh, noticed we have some new listeners in Brazil, um, Singapore. We have one listener in Singapore, so shout out to that one special person <laughs> in Singapore. Um, we have one listener in Saudi Arabia. I know who that person is. Um, we, 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 we connect on, on we, we are connected on Twitter. So yeah, he's a, he's a good person. So shout out to him. Um, you, I won't say your name, but I'll, I'll say <laughs> shout out to you. You know, you, you know yourself. So. Thank you to anonymous Saudi Arabian listener <laughs> for joining us today. And um, where else again? I think those um, Russia increased. So yeah, shout out to my Russian listeners for not being bots, for being real people. <laughs> so shout out to y'all. And um, yeah, so yeah, y'all keep sharing, showing love. Um, send, keep sending the five stars and write reviews. Not, not only just. Um, do five stars, add reviews also, write, write awesome reviews. If you write a bad review, I won't read it. <laughs> if you don't, if you give me one star, I won't read it. I won't, I won't notice that too. I don't see lesser than five stars. Yeah, all my friends say that. So that's how it rolls. All right, so today we have an, um, a special guest. All my guests are special, but there's an extra special guest. Because <laughs> this is the first time I've, I'm dealing with an with someone from this profession. And I've always wanted to deal with someone from this um, side of the creative um, arts. So mm -hmm. without much ado, I will go ahead and read the intro and then we'll get to meet the person. Cause I know you, I'm, I'm not the person you guys want to meet today. Mm -hmm. So um, we shall be talking to Ezra, uh, Isra, is it Ezra or Isra? Isra. Isra, okay. Mm -hmm. Isra, Elsa, Oh, I think I had the pronunciation earlier before. Isra um, Elsa Lehi. Yeah, Elsa Lehi. All right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry. I think I might just become the United Nations Secretary <laughs> General after this. You're getting the hang of it. It's yeah. cool. Was born and raised in Gothenburg, Sweden, mm -hmm. um, by two fine, two of the finest Iraqi parents at a young age of of ten. Israel was blown away by the wonder and magic she saw in the world of cinema, and she decided to take her then very mundane self and chase the next thing that uh, she saw on the screen, and that's how her new chapter in her life began. And through hard work and dedication, Israel was able to put herself through the two-year acting conservatory at Lee Strasberg Theater and Film Institute in New York. Upon her graduation, Ezra became, uh, began working at the famed actor's studio. Ezra was awarded a place at the 24 hours, um, at the 24 hour play national um, 2017 company, joining the likes of Claire Dane, Jennifer Aniston, Elizabeth Banks, Rosario Dawson, Seth Green, Olivia Wilde, Chris Rock, amongst many. There are lots of names. They're like, mm -hmm. you know, fantastic company to be in. Um, Ezra has worked in theater, film, as well as TV. She, sta she starred in the, the Invaders, 
a thriller where she plays a Muslim American jailer. There's a whole lot more to it, but just for the sake of just sticking to a short intro, I cut it short. But um, amongst the recent credits, there's also Anne Frank in the Gaza Strip, another girl who, thanks to the, the director, Austin Case, that's how I got to know Isra, mm -hmm. you know. So shout out to Austin Case. And that movie was selected for the Lighthouse Film Festival in New York. Isra has also done animated work, lending her voice to the series Super Wings, which was nominated for an International Emmy Awards, uh, Kids Award. So welcome on the show, Isra. Thank you. And it's our pleasure to have you here. And so let's begin. Mm -hmm. All righty. So to someone who, uh, you know, Sweden, Sweden is uh, a country that I, let me see, my first experience of Sweden was on TV and was uh, the USA 94 World Cup. Oh, okay. And almost everyone on the team was, um, you know, had one of those son names, um, Thomasin, Bronson, <laughs> Anderson, and you know that's how that's how it began for me, Lassen. Yeah, there's and, a lot of Sven yeah. Eriks, Eriks with the K's, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. We have a lot of them. And blondes. A lot of blondes, blonde blue-eyed people, blue -eyed for people. sure. Mm -hmm. So, well, I, I like the the jersey, the Swedish jersey was one of my favorites from the USA '94, mm -hmm. and I was like, wow, this this is a team that um i just and the, uh, sweden did good i think they finished uh they finished fourth or they finished third either third or fourth i know they got to the semi-final mm -hmm. of that world cup so and henrik larsen was one of their stars so that was like uh, you know stayed my my mind then and that's how sweden became like a real place to mm -hmm. me because that's what world cup does for like soccer fans so um to someone who hasn't been to Sweden, well, you know, well, how will you describe Gothenburg and what was Gothenburg like? So it's a two-part question. So what was Gothenburg like for you growing up? Okay, so Gothenburg for me was really interesting growing up. I um, Gothenburg is a very segregated city, and I grew up in a predominantly sort of immigrant area. Uh, that's kind of how it ended up when you when you arrive, when my parents arrived from Iraq, they were placed in the neighborhood. So you didn't get to choose where you were necessarily going to end up living. Mm. So my, my family was placed in Yelbo, which is a part of Angriad, which is this kind of, um, it's part of Gothenburg there. And it's very segregated. Like if you go on the tram, for example, one area or like the end station of one direction will yeah. be entirely like predominantly white community, oh, uh, wow. wealthy. And then the, the opposite, the other end of that same trans station and station will be, uh, you know, more of like a, um, a struggling area. It would traditionally be more um, populated by immigrant families or people who are newly arrived to the country. And that's yeah. kind of the area I grew up in. Oh. And I will say I really loved um, growing up in the area that I did. Obviously, the segregation is a huge issue, issue in the community. And as a, um, a young kid, I did work with different various youth groups in order to, to gap, um, gap the areas and uh, do our best to sort of se segregate the communities by bringing together people from all the different areas of Gothenburg, um, young kids to work with each other in various projects and traveling to places like uh, we also uh, had a sister, uh, com not company organization, I guess you could call it, called A Shared Future in Northern Ireland, yeah. where they were dealing with the troubles between um, Catholic and, and Protestants. Protestants. Mm -hmm. So we would have workshops with them and they, you know, work on what is going on in their country and what is going on in our city of Gothenburg in Sweden. 
Um, what I will say though, like as growing up as a kid, I really did enjoy living in Yelbo, which is, you know, this mostly immigrant area um, and being able to speak my language with people, being able to, it's a very vibrant community. It's a lot of life there, you know, it's, there's never a quiet moment on the streets. And I, for me personally, I really like that. Mm. Um, I, it was a huge shift for me then when I um, ended up going, when I went on to seventh grade, yeah. because from kindergarten up until sixth grade, I was in the same school. So I okay. was kind of, I was actually in the same class. So you studied with the same students until you were about 13, 12, right? Yes. And then when I, it was time for me to go to seventh grade, I was placed in a predominantly white school in a very uh, predominantly white area. Oh. And that was a huge shift for me. Okay. Um, it, not necessarily for the worse. It was just a really big adjustment to be made. Yeah, it's like the culture shock and. Yeah, know. to a certain extent, it is, um, and um, yeah, it, it was a little bit. It was a little bit strange, but it wasn't that long before I ended up going to you know when before we had to move on to high school, and I ended up in a choosing a high school I really enjoyed, and um, I was actually studying. I was in Sweden. You pick between three. Um, when you go on to high school, you pick between three majors. You either are going to study more, uh, have an education that's more centered at the arts mm -hmm. uh, or social studies or alternatively science, nature and science. Wow. So that's what I ended up choosing. And depending on what you choose, you are have a large, like if you were to choose social studies, you would end up doing something within the social sphere. If you're choosing arts, it would be either, you know, theater um, painting, whatever it is within the arts, yeah. you are studying more classes towards what particular area you are intending to do after high school. Oh. Um, so for me, okay. it was studying science. I was studying extra biology, physics, chemistry, and I actually chose to do the English section. So you could, you had the option of studying it in Sweden, Swedish, like all the other students, or you could also do the English section, which is a class where you're getting taught all the subjects that all the other kids are getting taught, but you're getting taught them in English. So oh, you're improving so that, your that's English skill. That's This is in high school, yes. Wow. And I did that for about a year and a half before I ended up going back to the Swedish um, students, not because of the language barrier, but because they the program wasn't really well developed for us. So we would have sort of advanced university level textbooks versus mm -hmm. having something that is more adjusted to high school students. Okay. And so essentially we were fighting three times, four times as hard to get the same grades that a normal Swedish kid or a kid who was taking, going through the Swedish, normal Swedish mm. program, or say the traditional Swedish program rather, would have. So yeah, growing up in Sweden was, um, it was interesting. I, I feel a lot more like I belong in America in terms of just um, how sort of a lot of people here, you're kind of accepted for who you are. You're allowed to be sort of an energetic, spirited, flamboyant kind of person, which I am a little bit. Um, and I think in Sweden, there's more this idea of like everyone should kind of stay in their lane and sort of, you know, not be too much or whatever, you know, whatever that means. And so for me, it was really a good relief to be able to get out of Sweden. You know, it's it's interesting that you bring uh, that up because the picture that we kind of get of Sweden mm -hmm. on the outside is like, you know, compared to most of the other Scandinavian countries, because I've been to Finland, mm -hmm. but I, uh, luckily for me, I did not stay in Helsinki. I was there for mm -hmm. two weeks. Mm -hmm. It was a vacation, but I went to a smaller city inside. Mm -hmm. I stayed in uh, Lakti, and I got to see like the real Finland. Mm -hmm. you well, know, mm -hmm. I would say Helsinki is still real Finland, but mm -hmm. Helsinki is much more, it's kind of like 
going to Berlin, Germany, and then you right. go to like you know Bavaria, and it's a whole different environment. You know, yeah. it's more laid back, more conservative. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, Berlin is more hipster. That's why Helsinki is kind of and Lacti was like laid back, and I was like, wow, you know, this was not. I thought. It's one brush you could use to paint the whole country. No, they're like all and, different. You know, so I think that kind of started changing my perception of what Scandinavian countries were like. Mm-hmm. But I was still being told, like, oh no, if you had, if, instead of coming here, I should have gone to Sweden with mm-hmm. what I was, the expectations that I came to Finland with. Because then I was single, I was stationed in the Middle East then. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'll just come here, all the women will be jumping after me. Mm-hmm. Oh, this black guy coming from the United States, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And, the women were like uh, so reserved, and I was like, "Am I sure I'm in the right place?" That mm-hmm. is not what I expected. Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Oh, go to Sweden." Mm-hmm. And most people they were telling me, "Go to Sweden." It's like, "Oh, yeah, they're 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 not as uh, reserved. They're they're more open. They're more and they're more relaxed." So there's this. I don't know. I've, I always feel like there's this picture of Sweden that's on the outside, mm-hmm. and then the, the the political side, like oh, um, Sweden I mean, has pol- a lot of women has, um... in politics. There's the business, and there's but there's so a lot of there's a lot of things. But at the same time, there's also like the rise of the right wing, mm-hmm. the the fascist. There's um um. Then you just brought up the segregation, and mm-hmm. which I'd never really thought about. Like, wait, because I, I know there's supposed to be at one period in time there was like mm-hmm. a high intake of immigrants there. Mm-hmm. I know they've been reducing it. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, but stopped. you're also speaking from an experience of like twenty, thirty years ago, like roughly, right? Or like when was it? Were you have you been in Sweden? Yeah. No, I haven't. I haven't. Oh, haven't? I've been okay. saying I'll go, but I, you know, but just mm-hmm. from an outside perspective, mm-hmm. you know, it's always kind of compared um, to the other. Neighboring countries, it always seemed like Sweden was you know the one that was always raised higher. I, I, and but it's never like there's never been that um, you know the, the, the you, you just brought up segregation and mm-hmm. we don't really think about like oh we can think about UK and I've seen it in the UK, mm-hmm. but we don't usually picture Sweden like someone that would have something like that. But without really yeah, realizing also- that it, it does have it. It does, of course, yeah. and I think that Sweden has uh, was maybe better. Things have definitely worsened over the years and throughout for the past twenty, thirty years for sure. I mean, we have a, a like openly racist party, fascist mm-hmm. party, the Swedish Democrats that are now at, at one of the third largest parties. Yeah, the, one of the biggest the last parties. Last election, in, mm-hmm. yeah, in Sweden, and just I think just five years ago or so, they were like at a 13%. They were kind of a, still a large party for, for a singular party, right? Percentage-wise. But, you know, now the fact that they've become so big is a huge thing. And I think things are definitely going towards the worse. And I think Sweden has just always been really good at portraying a really good image to the outside world, but may not be reality. And I think in terms of like healthcare and things like that, Sweden has been good which is now also worsening quite a bit. But back in the day, I think people associated the quality of life there in general as being good for all kinds of people. But that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean just because the quality of life is good for an X amount of people mm-hmm. or like the predominantly white population, it doesn't mean that that is something that's also coming through to everybody else. It's also very bureaucratical as well. It's all in the bureaucracy of things versus overtly being racist, I think. Now it's getting to a point where it is being overtly racist with the Swedish Democrats and whatnot. But yeah, it's been a development for sure. Wow, mm-hmm. it's amazing. Once yeah, that that's the beauty of doing this because mm-hmm. you get to hear from people who've 
being there who grew up there and who had been under that, such systems and then right. you start realizing that wow you know all we just had were just the picture to just look at and say oh you know why couldn't we be yeah. like this I mean, like why even, can't you just be like without saying wait did we even dig deep into like even just know? putting people in the same community and not mm-hmm. uh like segregation keeps people in the place that they're at you know my parents were really um my parents were really hardworking and managed to get themselves, you know, managed to learn the language, managed to get themselves work in the in the country, and tried many different things. Um, but if you're putting everybody, like you're making it more difficult for people to learn the language, if you're putting yeah. them all in the same area, there's like all these little small things that you're doing that's causing there to be more difficulty for people to be integrated. It's a, it's a form of redlining too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without calling it redlining like it was called mm-hmm. in America, but it, it's it's kind of a play from that book mm-hmm. that was applied mm-hmm. over here mm-hmm. but you know but there are people who without realizing mm-hmm. because they're not familiar they, they don't really know the details so they just mm-hmm. oh wow why don't you see it worked in sweden so do it like that and yeah you're like um maybe you should look into the details yeah and, exactly or maybe talk to the people who i think there's a lot more going under the <laughs> underneath the surface yeah. than, surface than we want to believe yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right so Let's continue with you, mm-hmm. and so you, you, you. Uh, so in high school, you went with the sciences. Yes. And so that's how you ended up, because um, I noticed you um, when the, you went to the UK at I did. first mm-hmm. for medicine. No, I didn't go to the well, UK for medicine. So I studied English literature in oh, the English UK literature. at the University of Sussex for that. a year. That's okay. Yeah. I went to med school for a year in Sweden. In though. Sweden, okay. And right after high school, I was accepted to med school and I did a year of that. Um, and then I actually got a, a Fulbright scholarship and I ended up coming. It was like a, they were called a European uh, Student Leaders. I think it was, it was like a special Fulbright yeah, pro- I, I, project. Yeah, I know that scholarship. Yeah, it was only for five weeks. And we oh. went to um, we went to. That was not what I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah. we were at NU. With the, with the name alone, I was th- expecting something like two years. But no, it was just for a summer, and it was at NAU, which is Northern Arizona University. Mm-hmm. So we were, we were in Fulbright, and we were in Flagstaff in Arizona, and it was the best time ever. It was a program uh, dedicated towards. I mean, you had students from all over Europe, so they chose. Uh, one person from Sweden, me. They chose wow. two people from France. Two pe- like the larger countries, they mm-hmm. would choose two people from, and the smaller countries in Europe, they would choose one person from. And then they put together all these kids, and they gave us five weeks at, at NAU, and these teachers. And basically, we traveled a lot over Arizona, over Utah, and and where we were each writing a project about a certain aspect of um, of how to how to help the environment in the future, where we can do like the different environmental causes and effects and different solutions and we were working at this when we were like 18 19 right so we did this and then from there on when i returned this was in 2011 when i returned i i kind of decided to pursue my love for for acting somehow or something in the creative arts mm-hmm. i had been um i think from like it says in my bio from a very young age from from being 10 11 i think there was always an intention a passion to be an artist but you're told um, throughout life by society, by everybody, that a, a life in the arts is not a viable pursuit. That you I, I was I was going to come to, come yeah. to that because from the because being from an immigrant background mm-hmm. and 
you know, I saw medical school. I was mm-hmm. like, you know. It was you, not you, my you, family. You, not your family. No. Okay. They, my family because, did not uh, pressure me. It, it's kind of common for, you know, most immigrant families to be that, you know, to like that medicine, engineering, For sure. Banking, I think it's a part of survival. That. I feel yeah, like immigrant that. parents just want their kids to be able to survive in a world that has been really rough to them most of the time. Yes. Right? Like, um, but I think for in the case of my family, that wasn't. That wasn't the case. I think it was more of they were, you know, I didn't really know. I knew I wanted to be something. I knew I loved the arts, but I knew also that was potentially not a viable source. And so I wanted to give myself the most options. Okay. That's why I ended up choosing science in high school, because I would give you most options in terms of when you graduated too, in terms of just generally professions. There's a lot that you can do if you choose that line in Sweden. And the medical school was another where like, oh, this is a good job. This is whatever. But I think it was during that time in, in Arizona um, that I kind of got awakened to the idea of like, I really need to do something that is going to keep me passionate for the rest of my life and happy for the rest of my life. And my parents initially, you know, my parents never said, you got to be a doctor, you got to be this and that. But they were worried for me. Like, you know, mm-hmm. any parent, I guess, would be to a certain extent worried that their kids um, are not going to be able to provide for themselves or by choosing something that is a little bit more riskier. But all it took was time. I think in time and in them seeing that I was pursuing this passion fully, I was not. I was being serious. This was not, not a joke to me. Yeah. I think all of those things led to them uh, easing up, you know. And they still, like, till this day, sometimes will be, like, a little bit nervous or worried or want me to make sort of, like, a plan. Not a plan, but they'll be like, oh, give this another five year or give this another <laughs> three year, you know, that kind of thing. And to me, it's, you know, I, I listen to it. I take it in, um, but I don't abide to it at all. I'm my own individual. I know what I want and what I want to do. But for the sake of them, I'll let them talk. Of course. And take it in, and then it's my own thing. But, yeah, it was during that time in, in Arizona that I decided I wanted to do something um, different. I wanted to follow my passion. But it was a, a long path to actually getting to acting school because – I don't come from a, a fortunate family. My, uh, you know, I had to support myself financially completely in terms of my education and all of it. And so, like for two years, I worked four jobs a week. I was a clown. I worked at two call centers. I was a tutor in maths and biology. Oh, you're good. Um, you can teach math. Yeah, I mean, this is for like eighth graders, ninth graders. I wasn't teaching any like university students exactly. Not me. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm, you just know. Putting, I'm just comparing myself. That's it. That's, yeah, yeah, no. That. So it was a lot of a lot of that, and eventually I was able to. Uh, I had enough to pay my first year of tuition in full, Good. and from there on, I took student loans from the Swedish government and um, was able to put myself. Oh, so school Sweden there. also does the the system similar to here. For yeah, you can get student loans. You can only get a certain amount, and you can only get it for X amount of years. Uh, but but yeah, I, you can oh. ask for student loans. I thought I thought um, then they had universal education. They do if you study in Sweden, but I studied oh, acting okay. in America. Oh yes, yes, and yes. so I had to pay oh, for it there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the go- so that you can get loans in Sweden. To go study overseas. Yes, you can. All right. For sure. All right. There's certain criteria you have to fill. The school has to be a school that is eligible for that type of loan and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But if it, if you fill all criteria, then yeah. yes, you're you're able to do that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Not bad. Not bad. So, 
So, but, but why did your path take you to the UK first? To the UK? Okay, so, well, I was kind States. of naive in the beginning, I think, like a lot of artists are sometimes. And I figured like, hey, okay, so I want to get started immediately. What do I do? How do I do it? Okay, so I can't afford to go to school and I can't go to, afford to go to school in America, New York. That's like really where I did want to be. I think I always imagined myself being in like a 70s, 80s style New York, you know, like the kids from fame, the original movie, not the remake, the 80s version. <laughs> I just want to clarify that. Uh, that's where I was seeing myself being, you know, like a struggling artist in New York City. But um, I didn't have the money to get there at all. And I wanted to get started immediately. So I think kind of naive is I thought, well, okay, what if I make it to England? I can go to London. I can audition there and, and become an artist there. And there was a program that my school or my university, University of Gothenburg, had a program with University of Sussex in England oh. where you could study English literature mm -hmm. and it would be technically a part of Gothenburg University even though it was abroad. So you wouldn't pay any tuition fees, essentially. Oh, so like a satellite campus. Kind of, like a yeah. sister, yeah. something like that in terms of that. So essentially it meant I could study in Brighton, which was only 50 minutes by train from London. So I could study in Brighton, um, uh, study English, which was something I already knew really well. It wasn't a big struggle because I'd gone to English yeah. program back home. And, you know, mm -hmm. I just had an affinity for the English language. And so studying English literature wouldn't be a, a long stretch where it would take, it wouldn't be a rigorous education for me in that sense. So I figured, great, I can go to the school. I have some money saved. It'll be enough for my living expenses. And then I can go to uh, to Brighton, travel into the city, audition. I got a job at a theater, um, only working front of house, but it was an incredible theater, Theater Royal Brighton. I met a lot of cool people for that uh, job. And so I had the kind of life set up in England. But obviously it was very naive. Like you can't just show up somewhere with no training, no experience and accept, expect to get into like the biggest rooms in London. That just doesn't work. Mm. Um, and also London is a very... Um, the acting community in London, it's really hard to get into. Like you have to be from one of the, the best schools. You have to be from Rod or Lambda, like one of these major schools in England to even be considered to audition for a lot of these projects. And you have to have experience. So it was a little bit naive of, of, of me. And after being there for a year, I eventually just sort of decided that my heart wasn't in, it was difficult, which a lot of things in my life have been difficult, but it, I was also struggling for something that I didn't necessarily want. I didn't want to be in London or England. I wanted the, the plan, the dream from the beginning had always yeah, been, New been New York. Yeah, the original plan. The original plan. And so I said, like, look, if it has to take time, then it has to take time. So um, that's when I essentially moved back home and lived at home for two years and did those four jobs a week and saved every penny I could. Um, and then after those two years, I had enough and I was like, I had enough money and, and, uh, the time had come for me to move to, move to New York. That's some discipline. Yeah. That's cool. Mm -hmm. So now with your moving to New York, mm -hmm. we'll come back to acting. Mm -hmm. But, um, so you had been to Arizona already mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then you came to New York. So when it comes to culture shocks, which one stands out the most to you your, your first culture shocks in america was it the one that hit you in um arizona or, your, or was it in new york Ooh, new york by far new york arizona was really um i mean in arizona we were so well taken care of like you know we had the school affiliate and there's teachers there that were uh, 
guiding us throughout. Everything was taken care of for us. And Arizona is also wildly different than New York. Mm-hmm. Um, New York was a huge culture shock for me. I think like the almost immediately it was intense. So I came to New York in 2015, right? In January 2015. And it was apparently like one of the coldest winters in 20 years in New uh, York or something at that yeah, time. Yeah, I just, I, I was around, I just moved for that week. Yeah, it was really, really <laughs> insanely cold. And I, I came and I, you know, I didn't know what to expect. So I came to New York uh, and we got off the airplane and it's, we're at the airport and it's freezing cold, freezing cold, right? We're standing for this in this cab line to get onto this cab. And I had also, I didn't know the area. I didn't know the map of New York. So I had apparently booked an Airbnb that was two hours away from school, from Union Square, where I would be going to school every day. Oh. So it was like four-hour travel every day. It was like you had to go to like Jamaica Center, then take a, 30, a bus for 30 minutes, then walk six blocks. Like that's like how far out it Yikes. was, right? So it was a little <laughs> bit insane. And we're living like in this woman's basement who was like was super cold there. Like it was like the worst. But anyway, we get on the we get on the cab. And till this day, I think it, it was the most horrendous cab ride I've ever been on. And it was only for 10 minutes. So that's like to say a lot about what that experience was. Um, the, the cab driver was just like on his phone the entire time. He was really aggressive and tired of, about oh, yeah. whatever was going on on his phone. And then... Um, he, when he dropped us off, he was like just really angry and obnoxious and like uh, yelled at us. And I was coming, you know, with my mom at the time. Was it a yellow cab? It was a yellow cab, yeah. Although I have also made the mistake of like taking one of those like uh, legal taxis or wherever they are where they don't tell you, you think it's a cab, but it's not from the airport. Oh. You know, I did that early on in New York too. But anyway, it's just the worst cab ride ever. And then you arrive at this place, it's so cold. And I have to say, like putting my head on that pillow that night, I was like, did I make the right choice here, folks? Like, I'm not sure. Obviously, I'm not a person who gives up really easily or anything like that. So, you know, I knew I was going to be staying, but it it was a huge shock to come to this like really cold environment and just everything seemed so alien and kind of, you know, I was afraid that all of New York would be this cab driver. You know what I mean? That everywhere I would go, I'd be meeting, you know, yeah. these, uh, these kind of horrendous personalities. But <laughs> uh, it turned out eventually to be all right. You know, I survived that first winter. I moved, my first apartment that I moved into was equally bad. I mean, that whole apartment was an adventure in of itself. It was like four roommates. We were four roommates. None of us knew each other. We were like people that the landlord had just sort of put together. So we all had like a separate lease, right? And it's supposed to be some like newly renovated place in Bushwick, right? Hart and Irving. 87, 871 Hart. Don't move into that place, folks. Okay. I'm just telling you, (laughs) warning. Um... Yeah, so it was supposed to be this newly renovated place, but they must have done some kind of shoddy job. So there wasn't, none of the heating was put together properly. So we got there, there was no hot water, there was no heating. Again, coldest winter in New York. Three days of that, and I was sleeping on an air mattress on the floor. So, I, you know, the cold goes straight to your back. Like, there's nothing mm-hmm. to to do that for. Mm. Um, the first floor was all drug dealers. Oh boy. Sold lots of different types of drugs. I immediately befriended them because you want to make friends with the drug dealers in your building. <laughs> Look, I'm not looking for any trouble. I'm just looking oh, yeah. to be protected, okay? <laughs> so, uh, smart. I'm so, look, street <laughs> smarts came fast in New York City. That's all I've got to say about that. Um, but yeah, and so there was like no heat, no hot water, cockroaches everywhere. 
uh, that apartment, someone broke in six months into it. Someone tried to break into the apartment while my roommate was sleeping in her bedroom. Someone was trying to break in. And her scream was so loud that they got scared off and they left. At one point, the doorknob came off as we all had to like go leave the apartment through the fire escape for two days. Uh, When summer came, the AC didn't work because they hadn't also had not put together the AC. Oh, that was worse. And it was like central heating or something. It was like central AC. For the love of God, like I don't know how much builder's dust I swallowed in that year because every time the AC or the heater was on, there was just like a layer of builder's like dust all over the place. It's kind of crazy. So many things happened in that apartment like till this day. Like I don't even know how. And it was my first apartment in New York City. So I don't even know how I like was able to go along with it all. Oh, oh man, it was rough, rough times. I'll say that. that, that that's a whole, that's a script on his own. <laughs> yeah, I think look, you can, I've got stories for days, my <laughs> you friend. You can write a movie just from, uh, just from that. I think you have a movie right I there. I also lived in in bookshop in Paris for like a couple of months back in the day. That sounds more romantic. Well, that was that was romantic, but I did live with quite a few douchebags during okay. that time. So, looking I think, back, I think you're, you're the second guest on this podcast too uh, might have some non-romantic story about paris yeah i mean i love paris don't get okay. me wrong it's one of my favorite cities in the world yeah, but she, she um, loves you about paris too yeah but it's it's a great place but it, it you know it wasn't a romantic experience no but looking back i think my mind really romanticized it so now when i look back i'm like oh those days but now <laughs> like uh, you know at when it was happening i don't think i was as, uh, <laughs> as fond of it Oh, oh yeah. my goodness! So, you arrive in New York, mm-hmm. get get over the the get used to the culture shock and mm-hmm. all the all the crazy. So, what was the first thing that made you feel like okay, this can be home for me? This is hmm. this is this is it. I'm beginning to fall in love with this place. I mean, what I always love about New York, and I've always loved about New York, is the sense of. Um, much like my neighborhood back home in Gothenburg, but 10 times as much, I would say. New York is like my hometown, but like cranked up to 100%. Is this, you know, this vibrance, it's a huge uh, vibrant city with a lot of people from all kinds of backgrounds. I love that you can be whoever you want to be in this city and you're very rarely judged for that. Um, I loved uh, my my friends in school and the community I started to create, you know, like having, I finally felt like I wasn't the odd person. Mm-hmm. Like I was actually very normal in comparison to a lot of other yeah. people in the city. That And that's something I hadn't really experienced before. Um, and and just like there's there's always something to do in New York. It never ends. It that's truly true. is a city that never that sleeps. That is true. And being able to explore that city with people who I, I who I cared for and accepted me who, like I was uh, for who I was that that to me is the things that have made New York feel home. And that grittiness and weirdness, it's like I don't know how to explain it. It's it's uh, New York is like your weird friend. You just love it. It's odd and you accept it. And it's that's right. You know I, I think mean? Like, I think that's just the it's best. Charming. It's charming. That's the best way of saying it. Yeah. it's just your weird it's friend. It's all messed who, up, but it's charming and you love it anyway. That's you know? right. Someone else might complain on you, be like, "Look, man, you you just don't know." Yeah, you just know, you it, just know don't it, know New York. Yeah, if you knew, you would love it. Yeah, that's it, and that's why it's it's home. It's home for all of mm-hmm. us. So. Um, this question might be jumping back to um, to Sweden. Mm-hmm. 
And it might also, it also involves New York. So it might be. Sure. So I guess let me see. I'll break it. I'll make it two parts then. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of my favorite topics, food. Mm-hmm. So back in Gothenburg, um, did you have any special delicacies that you know were your delicacies like local to whether Iraqi or Ooh, okay so or Swedish? I mean, I got I was a lucky kid. I got a lot of all my meals were pretty much home cooked meals. My mom's mm. a great cook, um, so I ate a lot of Iraqi food, delicious, delicious Iraqi food. But what I do miss in, in Sweden we have a lot of great desserts that I miss a lot there's like this thing called semla which I love and I had two of like two or three of them when I got back when I was home over the holidays it's basically this like sweet bun that they cut the top off then they they carve out the interior and you fill it like an almond sugar paste so it's like an just grounded almonds with sugar and different things and you put that in the center of the bun mm-hmm. then you top it with this like whipped cream and then you put the little lid on top of it that you cut off in the beginning yeah put powdered sugar on that and that's it so it's like the sweet bun with almond paste and sugar and cream and it's mm. like one of the most delicious things ever love it we also have quite a weird selection of candy like we have salted licorice it was like a big thing, which I remind. I just remember to have a bag of at home that I brought over that I will snack on later on. Uh, there. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I don't think I saw salted licorice over. Oh, it's Dortmund. a huge thing. I know at the uh, the medieval festival I was. Mm-hmm. You went to a medieval festival in Gothenburg. No, in Dortmund. Ah, okay. Um, I haven't I haven't been Gothenburg yet. Right. Mm-hmm. But in Dortmund, um, almost every time I'm in Germany, my in-laws always take me to a medieval festival um, happening in the area. And mm-hmm. there was a bag of licorice that they, I was like, that's way too much. I'm, 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 I just need a little one or two. <laughs> but they got like a bunch of candies. And I don't know. I, I got tired after like 10 minutes. I was like, I don't want to see candies anymore. That's True. It. And we that, got great I, chocolate. I, I was done. I was done. I hear you, man. I hear you. But um, but yeah, we got we have a lot of say. So I miss the sweets in Sweden are really great. Um, but in terms of food, I know I'm, I'm like most of all, I just miss my mom's food. Every time I come over, I just like I become a kid again. I just sit on the couch and eat and write and relax and read, and yeah. it's the best time ever. You know, gain a couple pounds, come back here and walk them off on the on the you know streets of New York. <laughs> so when you're over in New York, what's your your favorite uh, food? Oh my God! What I love about New York that there it, there is food from every culture, yeah, and right. so like you can just I have I don't think I have one favorite thing in New York. I have favorite things from many different cultures. Mm-hmm. Like uh, there is this um, Vietnamese place in near West Fourth called Saigon Shack that does uh, a pho that I love. Like their beef sliced beef pho. Mm-hmm. Mm best thing ever like if you're feeling low or if you need like a comfort food or it's a rainy day out you go to you go to saigon shack and get some like and it's a whole the whole business is a vietnamese family business run yeah um it's delicious food i just had a burger the other day at this place called holy cow next to um it's in the lower east side next to east broadway off the f train and their fries and burgers were like the best thing in terms of fries and burgers i've had in a very long time and i'm a you know 
burger and fries connoisseur, if I may say so really? myself. So that was you know really delicious indeed. Uh, there's just, just you know there's uh, Maya Huel, which is like this a great amazing Mexican place in the East Village, and you'd walk past it and it looks like a little dive bar because they have this like big thick black curtain that covers it. Mm-hmm. Why I don't know. I guess to get less business because they're so popular. <laughs> but uh, you know you walk down and. It's this really cozy place. They have these booths that look almost like church confessionals yeah. in a way. And you can sit there. They also have a top floor, but the top floor is uh, a little less intimate. And their tacos are some of the best tacos I've ever had. Really, really delicious. When yeah. it comes to Mexican food, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think if the place is fancy, I don't count it. I, I think it has to be some small yeah. looking, some place that's like, like my place that I go to is called um, Jalapeno King. Mm-hmm. And it's like some tiny, small, you can't really sit down there to eat. It's, yeah, yeah, that's That's the good stuff. Like those yeah, hole in the wall places, yeah, they're that, always that's, terrific. That's, that's what Holy Cow is. It's like a tiny place. Like mm-hmm. nobody knows about it. It's in the corner. Yeah. yeah. I can testify. When, when I go down, I eat just mm. like... Wow, the boss thing. knows me. He's like, "Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. it was by mistake. I found the place before they opened. I was like, you guys open?'" He was like, "Well, we're about to." I was like, "All right, I'll, <laughs> I'll wait." <laughs> yeah. And since then, it's like he knew he knew my whole story. When I tested his food, there he knew my whole story. After that, he was like, "All right, yep." Every time he sees me now, he knows I have a kid. <laughs> he see my kid grow up. <laughs> yep, he knows me. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's your? Can I also uh, plug one of my favorite cupcake places? Oh, sure. This is oh. like just. Can we just make a, a show about food here, Marcos? <laughs> like, guys, like, I mean, like this is like my favorite thing to do. Mm. Okay, Molly's goddamn cupcakes. Okay, it's not called goddamn. I added that for flavor and. You know, authentic, <laughs> authenticity. Um, Molly's cupcakes on West Fourth are some of the best cupcakes I've ever had in my life. I think they're voted ten top bakery in New York City. Really? And I would say the flourless chocolate cake cupcake is delicious. I had wow. the Black Forest cupcake. It's a new one to their collection. Really delicious. Hmm. Creme brulee cupcake I'll and loose cheesecake them. one is good too. I yeah. have to. Please do. Next time I'll bring some over. Please do. Please Uh, do. I think I'll I'll have a Scandinavian episode (laughs) next time. We'll have salted licorice and pickled (laughs) herring. I think that that's going to be the the, the menu. Uh, All right. So let's get back to the (laughs) acting world. Yes. Now that we've messed around with food. And um, before we even get back to the acting world, Mm -hmm. are, are you big into music? I am. I love music. What kind of music do you listen to? Oh, oh, there is no rhyme or reason to my music list. I listen to everything. So like while you were back home, what what was it? Oh, back home? Yeah, growing up. Oh, growing up. Oh, okay. Good question. Well, you know what? I kind of grew up with my dad's music taste when I was a child. So I listened to a lot of the Beatles. A lot of ABBA. I mean, typical Swedish kid. You got to have ABBA in your repertoire. Um, You know, also, weirdly enough, like a lot of um, Bollywood music. Ah. My dad had a pet shop growing up and he would just play a mix of Bollywood, ABBA and and Paul McCartney. No Bunny M? Bunny M? Yeah. No, what's Bunny M? Oh, okay. If you don't know. Do you want to sing a a bit here and remind us all? No, no, no. If... (laughs) If I ask that question and you don't know it, your dad probably knows it. But Maybe I do. Maybe I've heard it, but um, I don't. Dancing Queen. Dancing yeah. Queen, yeah. Like uh, a French artist, uh, Marie Mathieu, uh, things like that. He would yeah, listen to. Yeah, what's the other song? Uh, no, no, not Dancing Queen. Um, 
No. Uh, Waterloo? Wait, I have to look up. Why can I? See, Waterloo. this is this is what Dan, that brain does to you now. Wait, like, wait, I can name all of them. I, I can't, okay, I dancing can't queen. Give me a man after midnight. Give me a man after midnight. That's uh, not Bunny M. Oh, Alba. Yeah, everybody bird knows Alba. Alba, I, I was what? a kid. I was seeing Alba. I was like, get these people off my TV. I'm tired of seeing them. So I listen to they, that. They play too much Alba. And but anyone who listens to who listens to Alba probably listen to Bunny M. Okay. Especially, uh, let me see, Bunny M. For those who can't see this, none of you guys can see this, but uh, our host here is currently looking up Bunny M on his phone. Yeah, it's all Ra- very intriguing. Rasputin. Daddy Cool. Uh-huh. Daddy Cool. Oh, everybody listen to Daddy Cool. Come yeah. on. Daddy, yeah. That was, Daddy Cool. Is that the you. one? Yes. Thank you. Okay. So yeah, yeah there's no way I, your dad wouldn't have played that. If, oh, for sure. For sure. Yep. See? Once again, the research is proven mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. It's, my, it's an ongoing research that I'm doing. Maybe I'll write, I'll finally put it into a book or something. For sure. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so you, you, you went with... The old school, growing up, and then when For did you sure. finally break free? Oh, I would say like when I got my first Sony Ericsson phone, the Walkman, Sony Whoa. Walkman. Do you guys remember that? That was like my first phone, saved up all through high school, worked shitty summer jobs, and was able to get that one phone. Uh, I think I listened only enough to a lot of like electronic techno music when I was a kid. That's very European. That's very European. Now, not so much. Thank God. I only have a few songs that go to that. But I also just have always loved like Motown and soul music as well. The Supremes, all these guys, like good favorites of mine growing up. Um, as an adult, I listen to everything. I listen to like most deaf, but then I'll also yep. listen to Bridget Bardot or like, you know, I'll listen to the avalanches and the dip or, you know, Anderson Park. Uh, fun, like, fun. I'm trying to remember the artist's name. Funny things, you know, we had a whole bunch of, um, music shows on mm-hmm. the Nigerian radios and, um, there were some that were like top 40 chart shows mm-hmm. and they included Swedish artists mm-hmm. like the hip hop, pop, uh, music mm-hmm. in the 90s, especially in, ah, I'm trying to remember them. Uh, what was this group that sang the I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Barbie girl? You know, Aqua. Uh, not Aqua. Was it Aqua. No, I'm a Barbie girl was Aqua for sure. They were a Norwegian group. Yeah. Yeah, that was Aqua. I actually had an Aqua CD that I sat on and broke. It was a really devastating day for all involved. <laughs> Mostly me. That was the song. Uh, I'm a Barbie girl yeah. in a Barbie world. Yeah, yeah, yeah that song, yeah. that song. That is, that, yeah, that's that, Aqua. That, that song was huge in Nigeria. Oh, it was? Yeah, well, huh. yeah, I believe in my part of Nigeria where I was. It was huge at one time. Look, it's a catchy song. And they got, they got some other songs where, yeah, I remember that. I don't think my nieces and nephew now will know who I'm talking about, mm-hmm. but... When I was a teenager, into my young adult stage, right. yeah, the, the, yeah. I the, mean, there was the, like, they played them on the radio. So anything early two thousands, I listened to. You know, I mean, Britney Spears. I think Alanis Morissette was popular at the um, time. Michael Lance to rock. They were also Swedish. I don't Who? Know. Michael what? Michael Lance to rock or something. I there were some bands that I don't know where those these guys would find them from. Or the, like Swedish. Oh, man. Well, they, sang, they had one good song. That's the song I just saw. Oh, okay, I like that song. Yeah. Well, that's it. If you bring the album and say you want to play the whole album for me, mm-hmm. I'll probably throw you out the window. Like, what, what are you doing? Play mm-hmm. just that one song. Yeah. And I think there was actually, um, 
I don't think they were Swedish artists, but um, there were some artists who suffered from that because the same program that had the Swedish artists pop up, you know, their songs pop up, they, mm -hmm. they would have like one of these one-hit wonders, you know, right. pop up, and that's how they became huge in Nigeria. But it was just mm -hmm. for that one hit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So by the time things started changing after the military government got uh, they removed, got done away with the military and democracy was reintroduced mm -hmm. after 1999, and then they started bringing foreign music acts uh, into the Nigerian scene to come perform. Mm -hmm. You know, they started with some of these artists from like Europe before they yeah. started bringing in the Americans. So, uh, yeah, they brought some of these guys, and you know, the guys would show up and pull like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. But when, when you go sing that song, we don't mm -hmm. want to hear that song. Like, yeah, you know, but the guys like, wait, but this is a new album, and I'm trying to. <laughs> That one song that you have, that's all that's <laughs> you want to yeah. hear. And then, yeah, it's like people get mad <laughs> until you sing that song. And then, okay, yeah, we're happy. Okay, all right, we're done. Bye. Yeah. You can leave oh, the stage I, now. <laughs> I kind of understand that. Like, my whole playlist of music right now, it's not just one artist. Sometimes yeah. I'll have more than... I, I got a lot of artists. Like, it's like, I love... Uh, I, I'm like just a... a I just pick like one or two songs from each artist. Like I don't mm -hmm. think I have one artist where I'm like, I'll listen to anything that this person makes. It's more I like... I used to be like that a few years ago mm -hmm. until I discovered that there was music around the world. Mm -hmm. So like now there people are like, I've met people from everywhere and yeah. what songs do you have in your country? Okay, at least well, well, God, it's, it's right. I have it's a lot okay. of music on my playlist. So that's, that's what streaming helps me with. Nowadays right. I can find or an like artist. Things you don't even like understand. Like I have so many Spanish songs. I don't mm -hmm. know Spanish. No. You know what I mean? Like just the music. If the music is good, the music good. is good. That's probably. it. That's what it is. <laughs> All right. So let's come back to acting. Mm -hmm. So how um, did you get your first um, acting job in in the states how i got my first acting job in seeds uh it was actually through i believe backstage no wait was it backstage no it was not i lied um my first acting job in new york city was with austin case who we both know yeah. terrific writer director filmmaker awesome guy awesome guy all around awesome guy um i got a, a part in his film another girl and that was my first project in new york city and i think I got it through my conservatory showcase. So when I graduated, we all do, at Strasbourg, when you graduate the two-year program, you do a conservatory showcase where all the students perform various pieces from scenes, monologues, you know, different monologues and scenes. And then agents and managers, industry people come and see us. And so I think someone in Austin Case's uh, team, I think it might have been his uh, producer, Becky, um, came and saw me perform, came and saw some of us perform and emailed out and asked if I would, you know, consider auditioning for this project. And mm. I did, um, and, you know, got a part in it. And from there on, sort of me and Austin have worked on a film after that as well. And we still stay in touch and, and, uh, I hope to work with him again. He's great. But that was my first job in New York City. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That was beautiful. Yeah. I, I enjoyed another girl. It was, uh. I didn't. I, I I thought I could predict the end, and <laughs> I did not really get it right. Out, so I no, told him. No, it's like, interesting, and it's on Amazon and yeah. uh, Vimeo for yeah, those so I, who I, want I, to. I, I told Austin. I check said, it out. Plug in for Austin Case there. I said, "Good job, you got me. Mm -hmm. You got me. Now I, I can start watching your movies because if I couldn't predict where it was going, you got me. I'll sign up for the next one. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. So, um, what barriers have you had to overcome? Well, you've already give answered some of these questions, but mm -hmm. now this is from you being in um, 
in New York City. In New York, from now going from you being in New York, not, we're right. not counting from um, Sweden. So the barriers you've had to overcome I in think, your acting career. Honestly, it's so weird for me. It's the biggest thing is, and I think this goes for a lot of international actors, is that the government is our biggest barrier here. Really? Because we don't have. Getting, I'm currently on an artist visa, an O1 visa. It's also known as like the uh, Alien of Extraordinary Ability visa, for is the more common name for it. Um, It's really difficult to get. You only get it for three years, and it very much limits the work that you can get. Like a lot of networks won't work with artist visa holders because it's not the same. You're not guaranteed a spot in America as much as you are if you're a citizen or green card holder, right? So you can book a series regular. A lot of networks won't hire period artist visas. Doesn't matter what their you know status is. Uh, for example, when I I did a show during the summer this past summer at the Old Globe um, in San Diego, the show called Nura, and I got my Actors Equity membership um, offered through this project, which is something that is very you know a big milestone in every actor's career is becoming a part of the union, and I was really excited about it. For six weeks, I went on thinking that it would all be smooth sailing. And turns out that I, guess could join the union, but the rules for me would have been entirely different than the rules for a green card holder or or a citizen. Like if you're a green card holder citizen, if you're an actor's equity um, association member, then you are able to sign up for EPAs, which are like auditions for Broadway, off-Broadway. Anytime there's a Broadway, off-Broadway audition, any major theater audition, you are able to audition for that by signing up online. Any actor who's part of the union, right, for any union project. Um, And I was told that if I joined the union, any time that I wasn't under an equity contract, Mm -hmm. my membership would be frozen, meaning I wouldn't be able to audition for EPAs I wouldn't get the same health benefits as most union members would. Um, I I wouldn't get access to a lot of the things that other union members would be getting. But at the same time, I would still be paying the same amount of money. I would still still be making it more difficult for non-union companies to work with me because that's the other thing. Like once you become a member of the union, you can't you can only work with non-union companies under certain certain circumstances and under yeah. certain contracts. So essentially they were saying to me, you're going to get the worst of both worlds oh. if you join. And so what ended up happening was that I declined my membership. And it is a very difficult membership to get. So, you know, who knows when the next opportunity for, will be for me to get that. You know, oh. I would have to book another big regional show or something like that or earn an X amount of uh, points, EMC points, um, in order to get in. So, so you know, that was to me a little bit disappointing because, you know, it's tough enough to get to this point. But then when you're, when you're getting to these milestones like a lot of other actors are and then like hearing no or like hearing like the problem isn't your talent or your work ethic or you, the problem is your status. That's really disappointing because that's something mm-hmm. that is not necessarily in your control. Like even with... Um, there's this major agency in New York City called Abrams Artists. So I do voiceover work as well, Swedish voiceover yeah. work. And um, I, a couple of times they've approached me about uh, voiceover work, EDR work for like major motion pictures in Swedish. But um, I can't do it because they require me to be a green card holder or um, a citizen in order to work on those projects. Um, and so, so you know, it's so really, even for the Swedish, but you you yeah, have to be a green card holder because you're working in the U.S. 
And so, uh, and in that particular, well, I guess, company. Visa. I, it was... I do, I do. Yeah, I mean, hey man, we're on the same page. I don't understand why the they work the way they work. There are all sorts of kind of reasoning for them, but um, wow. but yeah, it makes it difficult for sure. So that's why I'm actually in the process of hopefully by this time next year submitting my application to get my green card in artistry. There's no guarantee that I will get it. It's incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. In order to get the artist visa, you have to prove that you're in the ten top percentile among actors. In order to get the artist visa, you have to prove that you sorry the green card, you have to prove that you're in the one percentile among actors in your field. So it gets like ten times as hard to do that. But wow. you know, I'm gonna try my best and uh, fingers crossed. Uh, I'm rooting I'll get for it. you though. Thank you, man. I'm rooting for you. Wow, that's uh. That's something that I never really considered or thought about. Mm -hmm. Wow, it's a whole different world it's out there. It's a whole different world, yeah. Wow, 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 wow! I may mean, have made me forget what the next question I had in mind. <laughs> that's okay. You But, know, that, that's like the difficulty is that you're not only fighting. It's hard enough like being an actor in general, work-wise. But then to on top of that, add all these like extra obstacles. It mm -hmm. feels like you're, you know doing three careers at the same time, not just focusing on one. So does this, um, with your visa status, mm -hmm. can you accept uh, a movie role like in Europe or overseas? Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't, walk, my status walk. doesn't affect my overseas. Okay. Uh, being like a Swedish citizen, I'm a part of the European Union. Yeah. So... Any country that's a part of the European Union, with exception, I think, the UK at this point, I can work, I kind of have work permits without a problem, you know? Okay. Um, and, yeah, my U.S. visa doesn't affect my ability to work abroad. Okay. Just want to check on that. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, one thing, I, I was listening to um, a good friend's podcast called Funny Feelings Podcast. Uh, I think mm -hmm. you, you you enjoy the podcast. It's brand new. Okay. But uh, I think they're on a... The break now for season one, mm -hmm. and um, they had one of the the the, the actresses. They inter interviewed an actress from um, Deuces on HBO. I think that's what the show oh, is called. Oh, yeah. great! That's and a great show. That's when I found out about the intimacy coordinator, mm -hmm. and I was like, "Wow!" I I guess I was so much of the typical dude. <laughs> who just saw nudity and was like, oh, wow. So actors just get so into their role that they're just okay with just stripping down and mm -hmm. just acting like, wow, that's, I guess, that's, you know, before I used to be like, oh, I could be an actor. Anybody can be an actor. And then I, I'm not really sure I can really be an actor when it comes to stripping down and the stuff like that. And then she really talked about having an intimacy coordinator, how HBO did not have one mm -hmm. and, she demanded that they have one for the show mm -hmm. and it actually led to HBO having for most of their shows. So I was like, wow. So that's uh, something that was, I think many people should listen to, mm -hmm. including people who, want to, who are considering going into that field and right. not knowing about certain rights that they might have mm -hmm. as actors and actresses because it wasn't just only for um, women that she was advocating for. for, for sure. And mm -hmm. yeah, so... Um, When it, so, apart from the visa thing aside, mm -hmm. you know, so coming to um, roles, how um, 
when you um how do you deal with a role like you know if you have to pick a role and there's like mm-hmm. um should a role involve include being sexual or nudity mm-hmm. how do you navigate such i mean i think communication is a huge thing if you're taking on i mean i recently was um offered this part um that included you know nudity and a really intimate scene and i t- uh, there was some stuff there that i personally as an actor were not super comfortable with mm-hmm. and i approached the writer and director and i spoke to him about it and we talked about it and, and we made it work so that it I mean, it hasn't been shot yet, So, okay. but uh, we, we were talking about it and made it work in the sense that it is still true to the to the story for him and, and works for me as well, my comfortability level. Um, I will say I haven't worked on a lot of projects involving sexual situations or nudity or things like that, so I haven't had to deal with it as much. But I think for every every actor, it's, you know... It's all about your personal comfort level. You know, some people are super uh, cool with, you know, stripping down, getting naked, whatever. And that's amazing. That's awesome. Good for them. Uh, I'm a person who's a little bit more cautious about that stuff. And if there's a project that is involved involving that, I will always, you know, read the script and figure out, is this something that is necessary? Like a lot of the time I find that people who are kind of new to the industry or sometimes even people who are not very like, um, like I've dealt with. I've seen casting notices, including nudity, or been offered scripts, including nudity, where there's like no really reason for there to be there other than Mm -hmm. that person wanted to see a naked person on tape or film or whatever. And to me, that's a little bit like, uh, no. So you you gotta, like for me, it's, you know, is, is is this particular situation necessary for the storytelling? Is it important? Does it involve an important part of the storytelling? If yes, then maybe that is something you want to consider and, and be okay with. Uh, uh, for me, it's more of like, do I consider this to be pointless um, nudity? Can I talk to the director about it? If you talk about the director and writer, sometimes like, no, actually, this is really important because of this and this and reason. And then you can be like, oh, okay, cool, I get it. That's something I'm more comfortable with. That makes sense. I can use that for myself. But, uh, but yeah, but I think the importance of intimacy coordinators is huge. I think that's something that we really need. Um, in order to to navigate people's comfortability levels and also make sure that it's you know things professional they mm-hmm. have a closed set so there's not you know 50 60 people there um and uh and especially in these like uh, times that we're going through right now i think it's important to have someone who can navigate that and be an intimacy director yeah well um yes indeed because and when she talked about oh, i'm trying to remember her name i think her last name is mead Okay. I can't remember. I try. I can't recall her first name right now. Uh, it's terrible of me. I should have written it down. But um, when she talked about it in in that, in fact, the whole interview session, it, it just made me realize how much I take for granted mm-hmm. as a, as a, as a viewing audience, and I was just like, wow, you know, you know, we just like, oh, you know. We just look at oh yes, this is a role the, the actress has to perform. It's simple. It might oh, it might be a fake body part that's there, or the, the body double, or whatever. But it still involves the person being comfortable with performing that role. And sometimes directors might because I recently I met um, a director and we had a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, he he's from a foreign. Um, movie industry and i was like wow i don't even understand how <laughs> the stuff he was talking about I was like 
Well, someone like that, I could see him saying he wants to shoot a, a nude scene and without having an intimacy coordinator there, I could see it getting into trouble because he might just yell like, oh, no, you, you should be, you must do this. It's my vision, blah, blah, blah. And I can say, okay, I could see where there might be a clash because mm -hmm. sometimes we just see things from one angle without realizing like that the other person, okay, you know? yeah, the it's other person should okay. have a, have an input when it comes to something. And, and maybe it's because of age, I don't know, of mm -hmm. the maturity thing now, but... Ten years ago, I would have blown it away like, huh? Well, whatever. You've been paid. You get money for it. You should no, be able to do I it. No, I think that's but no. I don't know. I, I think now I'm I'm much more. Um, I'm at the point in life where I'm, I'm willing to. For it doesn't matter what job the person is doing. If the person mm -hmm. says they're not comfortable, I'm willing to say I'm. I, I, I'll pause and say, why is the person not comfortable doing this job? Was yeah, that, you never you can, want your you, actors you can, to be can, yeah, because uncomfortable. If, if someone is even the the janitor mm -hmm. who cleans the building, if the person says they're not comfortable in working in that environment, mm -hmm. you don't just say, "Dude, I paid you, do it." No, not at all. Absolutely you, not. You, you find out what's what's the reason. This person, of course, has and been no, doing this you job. have to also realize that these actors are. Mm -hmm we are working our asses off all the time. Yeah. You know, like the this whole lifestyle is for most part rejection and hard work. And I don't think any actor should ever feel like they have to do something just because they're paid or just because someone told them to. We have so much more power than we are told that we have. I've said no to projects that I, projects that I was even in the middle of making, you know, theater productions where I was given, you know, added sides or something like that later on that did not at all jive with what I believed in or what I thought that the what I thought was appropriate and I said no you know we always had every stage we have the power to say no to things that we are not comfortable with if there's someone else who's comfortable with that great they can go ahead and do that but you are an you know uh, an adult human being who have control of what you do and do not do and and as a any director writer producer whatever should always be really open and and, and listening and communicating with their actors what they need and, you know, saying like, oh, I paid you, therefore you should do this. I mean, no, no. like could not be. I think that's also a red else. flag, too. That's a as huge soon, red flag. As soon as someone utters that. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, yeah, <laughs> well, here's your uh, uh... <laughs> whatever bucks. I'm out of here, <laughs> sir. Yeah, I don't take that crap. Uh, <laughs> so I know that um, you have a love for vintage shopping yes i love vintage clothes and, indeed um so has that led to you being able to make changes or suggestions to um the sets um, on, on the movie set or? um you know what it kind of depends on when i was younger and i was doing more student productions mm -hmm. like i would bring in a lot of my own stuff because I just have a really cool wardrobe, if I may say so myself, you know. So I'd bring in a lot of fun stuff that people could use, that I could use. Um, when you're working in a more professional setting, most of the time you don't really have to deal with that. They have okay. like a specific person who's dealing with costume or whatever. And they'll always, like I've worked with a lot of costume designers and uh, dressers who have been like, oh, we have these and these options. What do you prefer? 
and they'll try. Ultimately, it's always their decision because that's their department, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, they will consult with me, and if I happen to have something that I think is absolutely perfect for a character, or that I think would help me get more into character, mm-hmm. then I can be like, hey, by the way, I happen to have this thing. I think it would really help me get into character. Is it okay if I bring it on? And more more often than not, people will be open to to you doing that you know if it, anything to help the performance and help the most of the time they will do but yeah it's mostly just uh, for my personal personal outfits and day to day not so much on set <laughs> have yeah. you been to San Francisco I've never been to San Francisco no okay I, um, a friend who's into vintage uh, shopping mm-hmm. mentioned decades of fashion as a huh. store over there And he said you might want to take a look at it. Well, if I ever go to San Francisco, I'd love to. San Diego, by the way, in Los Angeles, has some some of the best vintage shopping, thrift shopping I've ever experienced. Really? San Diego? San Diego and San Diego. I've never really been crazy about going there because of the Navy. It's Mm -hmm. down there. If I had been stationed on the West Coast, I probably would have been stationed in San Diego. I see. It's something I'm like, I don't know if I want to go there. So um, when when you have a five minute break during a rehearsal, how do you mm-hmm. spend those minutes? Huh, depending on how long the the rehearsal was beforehand. I mean, you know, the usual stuff. Pee break always great to do. You get your get your essentials done. You go yeah. pee. You get your trail mix. Get some water. I also am a depending on the project. I can be a very social person or a very recluse person if I'm working on something that it. Um, is really emotional, more dramatic, a dramatic show, then more often than not, I will need more time by myself. I need to conserve that energy. And um, in those cases, I usually sort of go away during a break or maintain, stay to myself. But if I'm working on like a comedy or something that's happy where I need energy or... I mean, a comedy can be sad too. You know, if there's some... If I'm playing a role that requires more energy and to be a little bit more spirited and alive... Then usually during my break, I do enjoy talking to people and getting to my castmates a little bit better, catching up on what their week have been like and okay. that sort of stuff. All righty. So do you have a, um, a particular uh, a type of character that you like to play or you just open to all of mm, You know what? I'm, I'm really open to kind of anything and everything. I will say that a lot of the characters I've enjoyed to do in the past have been people, characters who are... Um, strong-willed, powerful women who are have a lot of odds against them that, but then come through the other way anyway. And I like telling Iraqi stories. I've played a lot of Iraqi women. I like uh, telling diverse and uh, Iraqi women, female stories, not just like, you know, the refugee or the mm-hmm. victim or the, you know, whatever. I, for example, with Nora, when I was playing Mariam, Yes, she's a refugee. Yes, she's been through a lot, but she's a hell of a survivor and she's not letting anybody tell her what to do with her life. She has, you know, a lot of strength in that and she's a fighter. And those type of characters I love to show. And and they're usually, they're showing, anytime I get to show a character that is not often heard or seen is a time, is, a, is, a, is an opportunity that I'm grateful to have. And the Iraqi area is one of the oldest in the world too, mm-hmm. so... So, uh, lot of lots of stories to be told from yeah, there. And it's not sure. just only men who've played vital roles in those areas. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Africa, where you know that's lot. There are lots of powerful women where mm-hmm. way before colonialism came. Just, you know, doesn't mean just only men existed. 
Exactly. All right. So who's been your biggest supporter? Well, I I would say hmm, that's so um, that's actually a good question. I think my in terms of just my life and my personhood, I would say my family, my family always has my back. They love me very deeply. But in terms of biggest supporter, in terms of career, I think my family doesn't know so much about what I do because they are they're all the way in Sweden. You know, they don't get to they can't come in to see every show I do or, you know, everything. You know, they see the film work I do and the the TV work I do, but it's a little bit harder for them to stay engaged in that way. So I would say my biggest support in terms of my creative endeavors would be my friends in New York City. You know, I have a beautiful friend, Brandon. Um, who I met actually this past summer only when I was doing Nora. He was doing Almost Famous um, at the same theater. Um, and, you know, like I'll, he'll text me like, oh, I just uh, gave all your information to like this and this director, this and this casting director. And, you know, um, without even, you know, I don't find out until later on that he did something like that. And, like he's always got my back. Um, people like Austin, like any, honestly, I would say all my friends and all of the people I've worked with, have always have my back in one way or another it's it's strange how i you know i can get back heather raffo is this playwright that i iraqi american playwright who's an incredible playwright and actress she's won a loose award um she's very well known in the industry of that um and she and i met three years ago after i graduated i did actually monologue from her play nine parts of desire for my conservatory show Mm -hmm. and i heard that she was doing a reading at north theater which is this middle eastern theater company um, and I went and I listened to this reading that she was a part of because she's both an actor, actor and playwright. So she was in her own reading and she was doing a reading of Nora. This was wow. three years ago, right? Isn't yeah. this crazy? And so I went up to her and I was like, I, I like, I started crying. I was like, I love your work so much. Your work means so much to me. It really connects to my heritage, blah, blah. And she took my copy of Nine Parts of Desire, wrote her phone number, her email, her Facebook. And was like, we're going to have coffee and get to know each other. Wow. And then over the past three years, like we've been staying in touch, meeting everyone you know, once or twice a year. But for the past year, we hadn't had any contact at all. And then all of a sudden, I get a Facebook message from her being like, hey, who's your agent? I would like to recommend you for a role. Not mentioning anything about the project. And I was like, well, I don't have an agent or manager. Here was my phone number and email and all that stuff. And and before I knew it, you know, a week or so after, I was getting called up by the Guthrie Theater, the Old Globe, all these major casting offices to come in an audition for Mariam in Nora. Because wow. everybody, there's multiple theaters that are right now doing, like the Marine Theater and I believe San Francisco right now is doing Nora as well. Yeah. The Old Globe was doing Nora, Guthrie was doing Nora, everybody was doing Nora. And I I got into these rooms that I would have never otherwise been able to audition for if it hadn't been for Heather. I mean, it was still all based on my hard work and my talent. Like I wouldn't have gotten, I wouldn't have gotten the callbacks and then booked the job if it hadn't been for that. But just the ability to be in those rooms with mm-hmm. an agent manager was thanks to her. So I would say my biggest supporters are just the acting community that I've created over the years who have my backs at all kinds of times, you know. That's beautiful. Yeah, networking is important and meeting the right people who believe in you. And being like genuine in your pursuit, yeah. I would say too. Like I never network just for the purpose of getting to know people. You no, know what I mean? That, that's, or, it, or it, get something out when, of When them. I say networking, mm-hmm. I mean, there are people who have, I've, I network all the time, but there are people who say, yeah, I, you know, I, they say all the right words and you never mm-hmm. hear from them again. Right. And there right. are people who are just, you know, I, I'm, I'm same, I give the same pitch all the time and, mm-hmm. If something happens, fine. If something doesn't happen, yeah. then 
And there are people who I don't expect anything from. I don't, they don't owe me anything. And the next day, they're like pushing mountains for me, and I'm surprised. Right. They've never yeah. met me before, but they're moving mountains, and I'm like, wow, it's not like you owe me anything. You don't owe it's me true. anything. And you, you get what you put out, too. Sometimes they're like the biggest supporters out right. there that we have. So, yeah, so, but I always, that's the, I still always encourage networking. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I mean when I yeah, say networking. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, so if a movie was to be made about your life right now, uh-huh. who would you like to play you? Oh, man. That's, so, yeah, that's such a interesting question. Because the thing is, I feel like Isra at, at, you know, five, six, till Isra teenager, till Isra adult now has been like, I've constantly been growing as a person and changing as a person. So it's hard to think of like one actor that I identify with who has like had a similar career path and life path to me. But I would say, um, and I don't think she, I just feel like I'm a compository of a lot of different actors. I'm myself, I'm Isra, there is no other Isra. But if I had to choose someone, I would say maybe an actor that I've been interested in lately and who actually happens to be an Iraqi-American actress, which I don't see a lot of, yeah. especially in my age group, is Alia Shawkat. Do you know who she is? I'm, I'm, maybe if I see a photo. She was in Arrested Development. Uh, the, she played Maybe. Huh. Um, she's done a lot of other kind of smaller indie films, I well, would I, say. I, I'm not sure of the spelling. so I, I, mm-hmm. I was about to look, look out, but I'm like, I'll probably miss the spelling. Yeah, right? no, but she's really cool. Yeah, and, she and, sent me uh, her name after the show. She's kind of like an Ellen Page character, sort of a little bit rough around the edges, mm-hmm. but... Uh, tough and, and brave and hardworking and all sorts of stuff. And she's an Iraqi American. We have kind of a similar body type and um, just in general, I think that she would be, could be a good, potentially good representation of me. But, you know, I also feel like I'm kind of like Sally Hawkins and all these other like older people. And uh, it's, it's a tough question to answer. Yeah. I think you, it, you could also be, um, what's the movie? Is it, was it Boyhood or was it Boy? That had, um, that the director made in like 20 years. That was Boyhood, yeah. Boyhood, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it had multiple actors. So, because when you mentioned from your childhood to now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you could have multiple actors to play. Yeah, yeah, like so, potentially. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's another way. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So, getting close to rounding up. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking, should I throw this question in? Because you said you already forgave me before we came on the podcast. So I was like, <laughs> uh, well, I, I couldn't figure a way of. Throwing this in here, but is the IKEA question? IKEA question? What? Okay. Yeah. What's your favorite IKEA product? I don't know. Damn it! Don't ask me these complicated <laughs> questions. <Sorry>. Go on. <laughs> I'm sorry. Ah <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I don't take myself seriously sometimes. You know. <laughs> What's but, the uh, IKEA question? Hit me with it. Oh, but before I get to IKEA, there was okay. one question I forgot to ask. Sure. Um, who do you look up to? Um, as an actor or director? Uh, I know, that's one That is like one of the most hardest questions. Yeah, yeah. I I, I was like, I almost forgot that one. I just, I said, I can't. That's okay. There's so many people who I admire and it's, you know, Jordan Peele I love. Like there's all these really interesting directors and, and, and writers out there. I would say someone who I've, I'll probably never be in one of her films because I don't think that I am the type of person that she looks for. But I actually really am interested in Greta Gerwig's voice and mm. a lot of her work. One of my fa- favorite films early on was Frances Ha. 
I loved a lot, like this idea of it's a just following someone's really specific. All of our work is very, very specific, and that's what makes it universal in a way. Um, and just being able to identify with that sort of struggling kind of artist who eventually comes to terms with her situation in her life and what she can and cannot do, and through that gets the liberty that she's always wanted. So I think uh, Greta Gerwig is a really interesting person, and Noam Baumbach, her partner. I think she's made Noam Baumbach a better writer and filmmaker just by being sure with him, like the influence on his work from when he did Squid and the Whale to Marriage Story, most recently with Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. Oh, that's her partner? That's that's her partner, yeah. Wow. They have a kid together. Oh, um, wow. So, Greta Gerwig, I really, really enjoy her work. But like I said, like I really enjoy Jordan Peele. There's so many different yep. uh, actors and directors I would like to work with. You know, God, it's just so hard to say. There's so many. I would love to even work with Adam Driver. But you know what? I also love like Rami, for example. Like if you could make something in between Francis Ha, Lady Bird and Rami, if you could put those two together, like have that kind of Greta Gerwig perspective, but on a family or a person of color instead of like mostly the white characters that she kind of writes about. Mm-hmm. I think that would be something I'd, I would love to be a part of. Okay. Um, has the streaming of, has the entry of streaming services mm-hmm. increased job opportunities? Uh, I mean, in your opinion? you know, it's tough to say. I think for sure with Netflix and these different streaming services, there's more work all year round. Um, there's a lot of content that's being produced. But there's also, I mean, you know, as actors are used to having like pilot season, um, which is usually end of January towards beginning of March. Because of Netflix and the all year round creation of work and not just a particular period of uh, time period of work, there's a lot more work all year around than it used to be, I think. I also have not been in this industry for very long to say what the shift has been. Like I've been out of school I didn't audition when I was in school and I've been out of school for like a little over two years so I have not been in the industry long enough to say if there's been a huge switch but from what I hear um that is some of it Uh, with Netflix also I think that there's hopefully it's easier for international actors to get work as well because there is so much content that's happening um and so much content that is more multicultural so they need actors who are the more people of color and whatnot and people international actors for specific a lot of my friends have been booking work at netflix way before they did uh, or booked projects that ended up uh, streaming on netflix versus like booking projects with cbs or nbc who do not work with artist visas so mm. yeah in that sense i guess all right so mm. now ikea question okay shoot um what do you like doing at Ikea? What do I like doing at Ikea? <laughs> That's all I could think about. <laughs> Look, I love organizing my stuff, all right? I'm an, an organizing type of gal. I think that's what I've hold on to for my medical education is, you know, the need to be uh, uh, a kind of a perfectionist and organize and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I love going to Ikea and getting, like, cheap organization tools. Like, I went there the other day and I got all these, like, cool pastel colored boxes and blue and white like paper boxes and yeah. I like putting everything in place and getting you know little um, 
just all these like little weird things that you didn't know that you needed that are at Ikea. <laughs> they just like, you know, all of a sudden, like this funky potato peeler. I'm like, yes, I'll get that. Yeah, that's Cheese why I don't like doing that. <laughs> I'm going to do a public service here for everyone that's going to Ikea. If you go to Ikea in America, I don't know why you guys don't have like there's this particular kind of it's not a cheese grater, but it's like a cheese. It's almost like a little razor for cheese. So you can get these like thin slices of cheese by by um, God. What's the word for it? I don't know what the word for this tool is. I'll, what's that? It's, it's almost like a little cheese guillotine in a sense. Oh, oh, I think I, 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 think in, in I Swedish, see a photo. In, in Swedish, it's called Usthiven. Hmm. Um, we I can send a, a picture to the podcast and we can put it up on the webpage if anyone's yeah. curious what it looks like. Uh, but it helps you get perfect cheese slices without any harm. And for some reason, that does not exist naturally in America, but we have it in Sweden. And so if you go to Ikea and it does exist there, please get yourself one. No, that is not what that is. That is like a julienne thing. You make julienne vegetables of it. For those of you who are not here, Marcus just handed me a phone with uh, some type of a <laughs> tool on it that is not what I was describing. Oh, by the way, Marcus um, is standing in for Josh. Josh is usually the, the, the person that's here. Wait, let me see. Give me one second. Uh, I'm going to look up English, what Ustubu means in English. Okay. Cheese slicer. It's simply called oh, cheese, slicer cheese slicer in English. Okay. Apparently, it does not help anybody there. Yeah. Uh, but so, yeah, if you go to Ikea in uh, America, please get yourself a cheese slicer. All It'll make your life easier <laughs> and it's something I enjoy. Also, cinnamon buns are great. Don't believe anything you hear about American cinnamon buns. They're nothing like Swedish ones. Swedish cinnamon oh. buns have sugar on top, not frosting might i say so yeah get yourself some cinnamons a cheese slicer and some organization tools almost making me want to go to ikea right now i should i shouldn't have asked that cut, cut that question out cut it out <laughs> no cut no, it no. Out. also please for the love of god order most of your things online i spent an entire day at ikea getting yeah. things i had already seen online and could have paid like nine dollars uh, to get shipped but i was like i'll get some more stuff did not happen yeah that, that, yeah, that. yeah yeah i think I, I, i'll go by the online yeah, yeah because I, I, yeah, if I go there, I, I, I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll go the next thing. It's like, what is midnight already? I know. And if you're in Harlem, please don't go to the Brooklyn one. Go to the one in New Jersey. It's so much closer. I didn't know that. I learned that the hard way, folks, the hard way. All right. So final question. Yes. What's the one piece of advice that you've been given or a mantra that you live by? Mm-hmm. Or it could be a quote that you would like to share with the audience. Oh man, just one? There's so much. I know. Uh, That's why I, I, I don't usually put this, yeah. I don't send this out. I, I, it's, a, it's a surprise Actually, thing. It's something that my mom said to me recently. Um, and she, you know, I was feeling particularly down about a project that I hadn't booked. And she said, you know, to me, it's already just got to be the right person at the right place at the right time. Hmm. That's all it is. That's right. Mm-hmm. Simple, straightforward. Mm hmm. And it's the truth. It's the truth. I also have more of those gems, but that's the <laughs> one that I liked. I think that one works. Uh-huh. It works. Because everybody listening can use that. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So now here's your opportunity for your plugins. For my plugins? Yeah. All right. Let's shoot. Okay. So uh, I just finished this project, the Labyrinth Theater Company. We did, uh, I was part of their barn series in January. Uh, so acting-wise, right now I'm kind of auditioning, just uh, looking to book book the next thing. But um, in terms of writing, um, I'm doing quite a 
a couple of things. I'm going to be writing a series of articles for Backstage mm. about uh, what it's like to be on an artist visa, how you can get your artist visa, what it's like to be under it, some of the obstacles of it, just sort of stuff to um, to put that out in the world because there's just not enough um, information about it, what it means to be on an artist visa and how that works. Yeah. Yet there's so many international actors in America right now who need to navigate that and who who like I get um dms and things like that i get people reaching out for me to me through uh instagram who are just curious and knowing how about like how to do that and how to achieve this and have a lot of questions so i think part of writing these series of articles is to also kind of inform people and be able to like hey here's my experience here's how i did it here's what to expect and what to consider when you're going for this so that's one thing Hopefully through that, I'll also be writing about a similar subject for American Theater Magazine okay. once the backstage articles are uh, published. Um, so that's that. I'm also writing quite a few couple of short stories right now, working on some projects in terms of writing for myself. Um, and I'll also be doing quite a bit of judging, actually. Oh, really? Yes. I'll be judging the um, Women's Comedy Festival in Atlanta, Film oh. Festival. Um, and uh, you mentioned earlier in my bio that I was a part of 24-Hour Plays Nationals in 2017. Yes. Actually, I'll be a judge for the two, uh, for the uh, 2020 uh, 24-Hour Plays Nationals this year in nice. selecting who's going to be part of that project. So I'm going to be on the other side of the desk this oh, time. Beautiful. Revenge is all I got to <laughs> say to that. Uh, so <laughs> uh. just kidding. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what I've been up to. Just... Um, Auditioning, working on my own projects, writing, and um, surviving. Cool. Mm -hmm. So if uh, people want to find you, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me either on my webpage or Instagram, social media. Uh, you just, uh, my name is very unique, so you'll, anytime you Google, <laughs> you'll find whatever you need. But uh, my Instagram is uh, isra dot E-L-S-A-L-I. H I E, so that's Isra dot El Salihia. And my webpage is the same, it's Isra El Salihia.com. And you can find all my updates either on my um, Instagram or on my website. And I'll be placing all those lovely informations along with the um, release of the of this episode. So Amazing. People don't have to go too far. You know, Follow me on Instagram. Section. That's how we get work these days. It's <laughs> so all the Instagram likes and Instagram followers, folks. I'm not an influencer. Help me out here, all right? Anyway. Yes, go follow Israel, all right? <laughs> Just kidding, yeah. Oh, it's, it's a great Instagram feed. You might get hungry, though, because mm -hmm. she, like, she likes posting. That's true. I post food and whatnot. Yeah, delicious food. So, mm -hmm. yeah, make sure you've eaten before Ikea you products. Ikea also. Top 10 lists, all that stuff. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Really thank appreciate you. all the gems you've dropped. Mm -hmm. And we've learned a lot. And, yeah, look forward to having a part two with you down the line. I love that. And that sounds great. Hopefully, after after your Oscar win, you still remember us. And, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I'll be right here. Forget right. about variety. I'm coming straight here, folks. <laughs> you had it here first. <laughs> <laughs> all righty. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening and I'll catch you all at the next episode. Thanks for listening to White Label American. If you enjoyed the show, we'll appreciate if you rate review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from if you have any questions comments or have someone who will be a good guest on the show 
or you want to be on the show, send us a message at whitelabelamerican at gmail.com. And make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at White Label American. Thank you for your support.